Loveless Oregon is a short story collection by Elliot Matson about death, rebirth, prosperity, and its pitfalls. Each story takes place in the same building in the same town across many years. The stories feature disparate characters in different situations linked by their geography and imposing omnipresent supernatural forces. All stories were written, narrated, recorded, and produced by me, Elliot Matson. If you want to learn more about the collection, go to elliotmatson.com slash loveless. But for now, sit back and enjoy the story. Welcome to Loveless. Oh, it's all at the Oregon coast. Well, the, well, the mighty Mississippi don't know what it's missing in. Loveless, Oregon. Story number five. Cold Roses. Interior. Loveless Hotel. Mid-afternoon. I watch helplessly as two burly crew members carry a large wardrobe through the front entrance. They hit the top of the door frame. Some white paint sprinkles to the floor like dandruff. No, not white. Ecru. Gavin was very particular about that color even though I said all whites looked the same to me, be it on paint or people. He smiled and laughed. Laughed in that way he did when he knew I didn't care and wouldn't put up a fight and was just saying something to be combative for the sake of being combative. Let's go with the accrue, Maynard. I can see him say it. I can still hear his nasally lilt like a professor assigning weekend homework. He never lost that pedagogical flair even 600 miles away from San Francisco. It was easier to simply let Gavin be Gavin. I let him have things like accrue if he wanted them. The producer approaches. A tall man who hunches to make the Napoleonic director feel stable in his masculinity. His pen marks this and that in his notebook as he speaks, never looking up or directly at me. He'll never know how successful I was, how good I was. He'd probably counter with, well, successful, sure, for one of you. Producer. Few more things here, Mr. Clay. They want to place the camera right about here, so that means moving the front desk. I rebutton my ruby satin blazer and carefully smooth the sleeves, scratch at my wrist under the chain links of my watch band. The desk looks so good here, though. Gavin and I decided to place it here as the optimal welcoming point. Enough inside the door for guests to get a feel for the space, but not far back enough to miss the natural afternoon sunlight as it glosses over the ocean across Highway 101. I suppose it was Gavin's idea, really. Me, awkwardly feeling the desk's smooth walnut corners. Hmm. Well, are you sure? I mean, it's bolted to the floor. You'd have to tear up the carpet. It just looks so good here, don't you think? The camera could perhaps be set atop. That is, as long as it doesn't scuff. Producer, pen scratching to a halt, looks up from his notebook and down the bridge of his nose. He's nonplussed, but trying not to evoke it. Mr. Clay, we're paying you to shoot here. As I assured you before, our boys will put everything back just as it was when we wrap up. Sam over there took photos of the joint and everything. A welterweight buffoon with a 50-cent Kodak snaps an out-of-focus photo of an empty corner of the lobby. I bite my lip and try to find some place to put my hands to ball them into fists. I settle on behind my back. These idiots wouldn't have been fit to bring me room service. But that was before. Me. Controlled exhale and smile. (sighs) No. No, you're right. My apologies. It's your shoot. You're in the business of motion pictures, as it were. The unbolting, ripping, destroying has already commenced. We found that carpet at a Moroccan emporium in the bay. 
one of a kind, they said, woven by hand on the streets of Marrakesh. Gavin said that Bogey himself probably walked on one similar. But not this one, I replied, because this one is ours. Golden filigree, deep oranges, reds, ambers, and hyacinth, braided in floral arrangements so intricate one would have to lie prone for hours, tracing the pixels by hand to comprehend their intricacy. One day we did, just before we opened for business, straightening every askew line, dusting every picture frame edge. Or, I did. Gavin never stressed the details, but I wanted it all just so. Just so for the nobodies of loveless Oregon to ignore. Producer. Chatting with the director, both of them gesticulating and holding their flattened hands in opposing L-shapes so as to frame the scene. A picturesque view of a simulacrum of our life. Seems like we should start with 22A and move on for the reverse. We're fighting with daylight here. Director. Bites his lip and glances out of the corner of his eye at me. Says something indiscernible to the producer. The producer returns to me. Each yank of carpet fibers tears my soul at the seams. Producer. Still not looking at me. The director would like some space. Me. Um, space? Producer. Says you're standing too close. It's distracting him. Me. Looking at the director, ignoring me, then looking at the producer, who still doesn't look at me. Oh. Okay. Well, should I stand back here? I move three paces back. Against the wall with the framed San Francisco Symphony poster featuring a beautiful painting of our concert series at Sigmund Stern Grove. Back when I meant something. Back when I had transcended the distinguishable qualities of blacks and whites. Back when I wasn't the only black man in loveless Oregon, or probably Oregon in its entirety. Producer. Confirms with the director. Director nods vaguely. That's perfect. Thanks. Begin flashback. Interior. San Francisco apartment. Evening. Me. You get these crazy ideas in your head and you don't think them through. We have a life here, a great one, and you want to leave. I sit on our beautiful leather Chesterfield sofa, tightly wound, legs and arms crossed. Gavin, pacing on either side of the glass-top coffee table. But I have thought it through. We've been over this a hundred times since I got my tenure. I seek new. I want change. Me. I have changed. We have. It's the rest of the world that hasn't. You know how hard I work. Did I tell you about the woman today who scoffed at me outside of the theater? Gavin. Yes, Maynard. Me. An audible scoff. Gavin. Rolling his eyes with a disinterested sigh. They always are, aren't they? Me. And me, in a double-breasted suit carrying my violin case. Gavin. Exaggerated, faux thespian. Right outside the theater, you say? Me. I get up and start pacing in the narrow lane between the sofa and the coffee table. It's nearly a new decade. If San Francisco isn't past this yet, I can assure you some backwater Oregon town certainly isn't. Gavin. Well, if by backwater you mean the Pacific Ocean. Me. Same difference. If I or anyone with the color of my skin were drowning in it, people wouldn't bat an eye. Gavin. And how many friends with the color of your skin do you have? Me. I freeze and think defensively for a beat. I beg your pardon? Gavin. Do you count, say, our doorman as a friend? Because you never look at him. You always want people to respect you for clawing your way out of the bayou to the big city, and then you take offense when they don't see you as just another white man. So what difference does it make if we're here or there? Me. 
because I worked my way up here, not there. There's a tenuous order to these types of things, and of course I know his name. It's, it's Charlie. Gavin, it's Chester. And isn't that all the more impressive if you live there? You love when people are impressed by you. That's why you love me. Winks. I ignore it. And I tell you, we're going to be royalty in Loveless. Me. Because your great-aunt supposedly settled the town with some hypocritical fortune? Sure, fantastic for His Holiness, Prince Gavin Godfrey. Then who am I supposed to be? Your houseboy? Someone for all the yokels to gawk at as they go out fishing? At first, I resist Gavin's charm as he meets me on my side of the table and wraps his gentle arms around me. So what if I don't know the doorman's name? He's a doorman. We both got out here, didn't we? There is an echelon to society, and it's every man for himself. Gavin always thinks starting over is as easy as throwing a tablecloth over a perfectly plated five-course meal. Gavin, he holds me at arm's length and bends his staggering frame to eye level. His pencil mustache is a perfect curve to follow his lip, and his cheekbones could stand in for the slopes of Chamonix. You, my fine sir, are the ravishing gentleman with whom I will be establishing the Loveless Hotel. And the townspeople will have to take it on the chin, because we're going to make Loveless Oregon a tourist destination nothing short of Tinseltown itself. We can waltz down Main Street in dresses, and they'll all be too busy counting their cash to care. Me, wringing my hands and then finally cracking a grin. I bite my lip. You do look awfully good in that Ginger Rogers number. End flashback. Interior. Loveless Hotel. Mid-afternoon. Two more crew members. How many of them were there packed into that clown car? Bump me from behind as they move Gavin's mother's heirloom armoire. The frail clinking of china inside makes my heart drop. My finger is up in remonstrance, but before I can speak, the producer ebbs in my direction. Producer. Perennially writing something more important than the words he's speaking. What is it now, Mr. Clay? Me. That armoire is a Godfrey family heirloom. Please have your men be careful. Producer. Glances over by the men unsteadily easing the armoire into position along the south wall. Them? They're as careful as can be. Not to worry. To the crewmen. Yeah, fellas, and the record player goes over there. Me. Stressed cough. <laughs> I beg your pardon? Why does that have to move? Producer. The director feels the mise-en-scene is more apt with a taller object to the left of the frame, since the gentleman who will be sitting at the table on the right is taller than the man on the left. I guess he makes a valid point. Gavin would wax ad nauseum about the mise-en-scene, Truth be told, I never cared much about films until we met. Ironically, I only learned to appreciate them more when I closed my eyes and listened to the sounds. The score, the dialogue, the white noise, the interplay of the sonic landscape of the silver screen. I found that beautiful record player just before we left San Francisco in a home goods emporium in the outer mission. It was run by an elderly Guatemalan couple who bickered so much we all forgot we were haggling and I just paid them full price so I could leave. I assume the closest cinema to Loveless would have to be at least a few towns away, so I bought the console for Gavin as a surprise along with the scores of some of his favorite pictures. On long days of painting, refinishing, sanding, building, I would put on a record, take out my violin, and play along. Music would permeate the gutted interior and wash the walls in color as I accompanied The Red Shoes or The Adventures of Robin Hood or Yankee Doodle Dandy. I would play along to the theremin and Spellbound and Gavin would tell me to knock it off because Hitchcock gave him goosebumps. People probably thought we were lunatics, orchestral scores spilling through the picture window onto the street, clanging, banging, laughing. We put the record player by the window so everyone could hear as they walked by. 
and it stood there this whole time. I haven't touched a thing, just in case. Just in case he comes back. I am the curator of the Gavin Godfrey Museum. And yet, right now, I'm just a doorman. Me, watching in vain as the record player is carried into the back supply room. Well, I... I guess I suppose if the director insists. Producer. He does. The actors walk through the front door. The bell chimes before the crewman silences it with his hand. With the other hand, he reveals a screwdriver and deftly removes the brass bell from the wall. The bell has chimed more today than it has in five years. I didn't even hear it the night Gavin left. I've been listening for it ever since. He bought it from a shuddering barber shop down the road, said he liked the quaintness of it. I had done all the interior decorating thus far, and none of it thematically allowed for a dented and chintzy barbershop bell. But, like so many other things, I acquiesced. The first actor is a medium-built man with a square jaw and a peppy gait. The first black man I have seen since we've moved to town. His shoulders seem to be unencumbered by the weight of the world. He must not have spent enough time in Loveless yet. I should warn him that spending enough time here will do that to you. To us. Or, no, rather, I should present myself as a success story, a guidepost of how to carry yourself in the Pacific Northwest. As I deliberate, the whole crew waves him in, an interconnected string of, Hey, Mr. Lewiston, there he is, how's it going, Dwight? And the man of the hour, coming in. He makes it look so easy. Even the director makes an uncharacteristic vague blink as if to show gushing affection. I smooth my sleeves and check my lapels for exact evenness. I see the legs and torso of the second man before I see the rest of him. He needs to duck simply to make it under the threshold. He's instantly familiar even though I'm certain I've never laid eyes on him before. The towering svelte frame, the steely blue eyes, the perfect teeth, pants tailored above the ankle just so, and the cheekbones. It's the cheekbones. Me, squinting, whispering to myself, Gavin? A crewman bumps me from behind and I stop him. He's balancing a sandbag on his thigh and sweating more than my mother after carrying two children up ten floors of a Harlem apartment in sweltering, sticky August heat. Me. Say, who... who is that? Interchangeable crewman, huffing through each sentence. <sighs> Reeves Laramie? I think this is his debut picture. It was the director's idea to pair him with Dwight since he's got more experience and has worked with Gable and Hitchcock and Wells and such. Me. I'm certain I've never seen him before. He's so familiar. We obviously don't get all the new releases out here, though. So I thought maybe he was only new to me. Interchangeable crewman, uncomfortably shifting the sandbag. Mm-hmm. Nope. Me. What's this picture about, anyway? Interchangeable crewman. Some detective flick? What's it called? Nor? The Nori? Me. Noir? Interchangeable crewman. Bingo. Buddy, I gotta put this down. Me. Yes, sorry. Go on. Go right ahead. Just... What's the picture called? Interchangeable crewman. From over his shoulder. Cold roses. The words hang in my brain like icicles on Christmas morning branches. As interchangeable crewman trips away with the bag on his shoulder, I can't help but stare at Mr. Laramie. He may be a newcomer, but I've seen him a thousand times. Begin flashback. Interior. Loveless Hotel. Early morning. I dust and straighten picture frames as Gavin bids an elderly couple farewell. They both look at me in my crimson and mauve suit with gold accents like I couldn't be the help because I'm too well-appointed. But heaven forbid I'm a guest, not in this nice of an establishment. I give them a stiff wave and smile, lips closed to hide my crunching teeth. 
My face relaxes to neutral disdain as soon as they round the bend. Gavin, dusting off his hands in triumph. Another stellar weekend for the boys of the Loveless Hotel, wouldn't you say? Looks like we've got the place to ourselves until this afternoon. He pulls me toward him and we dance a few steps. I'm in the mood for some Friedhofer. How about you throw on the best years of our lives score and I'll put the kettle on. This is how it should be. The best years of our lives. We should always have the place to ourselves because the place should be ours and it should be our beloved home in San Francisco. Gavin is so happy here, though. And to think we resurrected this shaky building and made it a fixture of this little town. Me. As perfect as that sounds, I don't think it's quite in the cards. I point with the feather duster. Out the window, a sparkling Bentley Continental rolls into frame. First, the sloping nose, flashy grill, and elongated hood, followed by the aerodynamic cabin, like the fuselage of a futuristic plane only beheld at the World's Fair. The full automobile doesn't even fit fully framed in the front window, only adding to its speed and power. Me, continued, looks like another wealthy traveler just begging to be disappointed by what the wonderful Loveless Oregon has to offer. Gavin, playfully slaps at the feathers of the duster like a kitten. Oh, come now, Maynard. I think I saw some bunnies in the corner that need dusting. The man who exits the vehicle has caramel skin wrapped taut around his imposing frame. His bright white double-breasted suit flaunts purple and yellow piping to match his boutonniere, wingtips, handkerchief, and a band around his wide-brimmed fedora. He looks decidedly foreign, but exudes a precise comfortability with every step. As dense as a black hole and soft-shoed as Fred Astaire. Diamonds and exotic jewels adorn each finger, and they're the brightest things I've seen in Loveless since the day we moved here. The front door opens, and the bell Gavin installed the other day chimes its tired note. Gavin, arms extended, impossibly tall, spines straight. Hello, and welcome to the Loveless Hotel. We have a vacancy if you're looking for a place to turn in. Traveler, gingerly interlocking his fingers to not disturb his rings. That would be wonderful. Thank you, sir. He speaks an occasion lilt smoothed by mint juleps and southern humidity. I haven't heard such an accent since my late grandmother Bernadette, who used to hide her menace with such inflected niceties. She possessed plenty of menace, to be sure. I have the instantaneous cold feeling this man is no different. The man points at me. I thought I was in the shadows, but the crystal chandelier above my head shines a light so vivid upon me there's nowhere to hide. Traveler continued. I trust your man there can fetch my bag. To me, the trunk is open. Just a single white suitcase. Oh, and try not to scuff the paint. He grins so wide I can see the gold in his molars. Even from here, his eyes entrap me. Tucked firmly between his thick brow and meaty cheeks, yet vying for any attention they can get. Iris is yellow and chimeric, oozing like nascent amoebic egg yolks trapped in two white-hot frying pans. They're impossible to unsee. End flashback. Interior. Loveless Hotel. Late afternoon. The yellow afterimages float like headlights in my field of vision. The smoke from the flashbulb wafts past like a lazy poltergeist. Interchangeable crewman. Sorry folks, just needed to snap another photograph of this vase placement because God forbid if we- Another crewman smacks him. He clears his throat and nods in my direction. Oh, er, yeah, just for records, we'll put it all back. Not to worry. The squeak of the chandelier chains hanging from the ceiling prime my gaze away from the scene being fabricated at a new bistro table at the front window. Gavin thought the crystal chandelier was too gauche, but I countered with preferring to deem it outre. Countless reflections stare at me from above. The thing could fall on me right now, shatter into a thousand pieces and me with it. 
and no one from the production would look over, nobody from Loveless would deign to write a eulogy, and I would evaporate into ocean spray. I've been trying to prove myself to these pitiful townspeople since the moment we got here. Do they know they're speaking to the first chair violin of the San Francisco Symphony, I would say? Why, they're in the presence of greatness, Gavin would indulge. I let go of that idea the day he disappeared. They thought I drove him away, murdered him, or threw him over the highway wall into the ocean, whatever the rumor du jour is these days. First I was angry. Then, despite the inevitability of starting over again, I decided I would much rather leave forever than justify anything to them. Then I remembered I cannot leave, that all my finances, history, identity, recent memories are wrapped up, wallpapered, and hermetically sealed in this horrible building like an Egyptian tomb. So yes, interchangeable crewman, I do care about the placement of that vase. Just like I care about the paint being redone in the exact accru as Gavin intended. Just like I care about my record player being returned to the exact place it has stood for the last five years. Just like I care that you and your entire swarm of production members kindly and hastily shoot this picture, compensate me for my trouble, then kindly and hastily get the fuck out of my hotel. Me. Quivering smile. Would anyone care for some tea? Everyone ignores the wholesome offer. Producer. Addressing the room. Okay, everyone, we're setting up 22A. That's A as in alpha. Five minutes to roll. Dwight Lewiston sachets past me to a table full of snacks that seem to have materialized in the past few seconds. We share a steadfast half-squint and nod, mutual sizing each other up. I straighten my spine because it feels like he's standing taller. Does he realize he and I would be confused anywhere in town outside of this room? Well, there are the Winstons who own the bakery down the block. They knew who I am. Who I really am. Don't they? I've made a point to discuss classical music with them. I'm sure Dwight doesn't know about classical music. Although he does have a resonant pride. Shoulders back, head tall, an air of gravitas and sophistication. He sees that in me, doesn't he? It hasn't worn off like this hotel's coat of exterior paint. The feelings are like an aftertaste of the last tiramisu bite from Gavin's favorite restaurant in Knob Hill. Now there was a dessert worthy of indulgence. Around Loveless, the only desserts are stale saltwater taffy and loneliness. Reeves Laramie, the tall drink of water he is, spills into my periphery. Reeves, shyly smiling, we jockey in opposite directions before he finds his way past. Oh, oh, sorry there. Just trying to grab some water before the scene. Me, nervously. Oh, be my guest. Reeves, now I bet you say that to everyone. Me, confounded and brow furrowed. I beg your... Reeves, because you own the hotel, right? I chuckle, pulling out my ascot and patting the back of my neck. He even jokes the same as Gavin. His voice is a fresh box of cigars, chocolatey embers. He drinks the same, swallows the same. The slight gurgle in the back of his throat as he finishes the glass of water is the same. Me. True, yes. Very funny. They say you're an up-and-comer? Walking back the question immediately. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be offensive. I shouldn't have said that. Reeves. Offensive? Nah, you couldn't insult me if you tried. That's for the director to do. He winks. The director perches stoically in his chair, fingers tented like a vulture, minions swarming around him, perfecting the set dressing and angles. Me. My husband, my partner, former partner, was a big fan of his. Reeves. That's so? Something of a film connoisseur, I take it? Me. Oh, in every sense. Reeves. And you? Me. I don't think I can compare. I'd say I'm more in it for the music. Reeves. 
Well, good thing I warmed up these pipes. Sets the glass on the table. Me. Feet. You know, you look... Producer, off screen. Okay, places, people. Reeves rolls his shoulders and cracks his neck. He flips the fedora onto his head and instantly transforms into his character. A hard-boiled detective, no doubt. A greenhorn gumshoe ready to solve some contrived case. When he crosses the cameras and takes a seat at the table, I can't help but continue to admire. Dwight shrugs his shoulders and smacks his cheeks. He takes a seat across from Reeves as the gaffer readies the lights. Another interchangeable crewman holds a slate in front of the camera, claps it. Everyone holds their breath. The actors sit like mannequins in a department store window. The light outside dims as a few interchangeable crewmen turn on the hydrant near the hydrangeas and start the waterworks. To think, I've sat in that exact spot countless mornings, afternoons, and evenings, praying for a sunny day. And now they're making it rain. Director. And action! Interior. Hotel in motion picture. Early evening. Rain streaks the hotel window as detectives Laramie and Lewiston, I'm not sure what their names are in the movie, huddle over a small table. Lewiston smokes, his ashtray bracing under the stubbed weight of his previous stogie. Laramie chews a toothpick. Reeves, you want to let me in on a secret? Dwight, no secret here. Reeves, sure about that? You've got that look in your eye. The one that says you've got a hunch. Dwight, takes a long drag before responding. A hunch ain't a secret, rookie but it's best to keep both yourself until you're certain. Reeves is silent for a beat too long. He glances at me for a second. Dwight, I said, ahem, it's best to keep both to yourself until you're certain. Reeves shakes his head. Sorry, guys. Director, cut. Interior, Loveless Hotel, early evening. The director stomps over to the bistro table and kneels in front of Reeves. They chat as the crew fusses with lighting and such. The director stands, walks to the producer, whispers something, then returns to his chair. The producer approaches me. Producer. Mr. Clay, um, Mr. Laramie says he can see you watching him out of the corner of his eye. Can you please, well, stop doing whatever it is you're doing? Me. Nervously adjusting sleeves. Oh, I didn't even realize. I really do apologize. To Reeves, across the room, over the producer's shoulder. I do apologize. Producer. No need for that. He gets it. Thanks. The producer returns to writing in his notebook and chats with the director momentarily. The room falls silent again and everyone scrambles back to their places. A marker snaps. Take two. Director. And... Action! Interior. Hotel in motion picture. Early evening. Rain streaks the hotel windows. Detectives Laramie and Lewiston, I'm not sure what their names are in the movie, huddle over a small table. Lewiston smokes, his ashtray bracing under the stubbed weight of his previous stogie. Laramie chews a toothpick. Reeves. You want to let me in on the secret? Dwight, no secret here. Reeves, sure about that? You've got that look in your eye. The one that says you've got a hunch. Dwight, takes a long drag before responding. A hunch ain't a secret, rookie. But it's best to keep both to yourself until you're certain. Reeves, facing the street window. Well, I'm certain of one thing. Something in this case doesn't smell right. Dwight, they never do, first. But in time, you'll learn that it's just because your nose wants to smell something that isn't there. Your eyes are looking for ghosts in a forest. Reeves snaps his toothpick in his teeth and tosses the halves in the ashtray. He leans back in his chair and pulls the brim of his fedora over his eyes. Reeves, I'm not looking for a ghost. I'm looking for a person. Flesh and blood. And if we play our cards right, maybe, just maybe, they're still alive. 
Begin flashback. Interior. Loveless hotel. Maynard and Gavin's room. Very late evening. I sit up waiting in bed, as I have for the past several hours. The clock ticks steadily on the wall, denoting the excruciating passage of time. Gavin has been downstairs all afternoon and all evening enraptured with our new guest. Even when I returned lugging his suitcase, they were already in deep conversation about cinema. Nothing I could say or do the rest of the day could divert Gavin's attention, like he was staring Medusa herself in the eyes. Gavin enters clumsily and quietly. Gavin, perceptibly drunk. Oh, you're still awake. Me. I am? Gavin, talking louder than he should be. I didn't mean to keep you waiting, May. But Mr. Beauregard and I were having the most splendid evening. Gavin trips over the dresser and he awkwardly peels off his blazer. Me. Mm Mm-hmm. Did he ask for your man to fetch anything else for him? Gavin climbs onto the bed and kicks off his shoes. His breath smells like gin and abnegation. Gavin, stumbling bashfulness. But you are my man, are you not? He leans in for a kiss and I push him away. Me. Don't. Gavin sits on the edge of the bed and unbuttons his starched shirt. My covered legs and feet are a percale mountain range between us. Gavin. Hmm. Jealous, eh? Laughs until he realizes I'm not laughing. <laughs> Look, Mr. Beauregard and I simply hit it off. He noticed the score to Since You Went Away on the record player, and we started chatting. He's a film producer, as a matter of fact. And May, I'm telling you, he was beyond impressed with my knowledge. We chatted about Ford and Capra and Houston, about new industry breakthroughs. We both have an unbridled affinity for Wells's nonlinear story techniques. He was telling me that last time he had lunch with the band, can you believe it, Orson Wells. Me. Mm-hmm. Gavin continued, ignoring my annoyance. Well, last time, but I'm sure there have been many, they were chatting about an idea for a film-within-a-film concept he was mulling over. Did you know Wells has some sick affinity for editing projects over the course of years? Just lets footage pile up and chips away at it. I can't imagine. Mark of genius, I suppose. But here's the thing. Your brilliant husband brought up that I personally would rather do something right than repeat it the wrong way as is in the case of the three Maltese Falcon adaptations. And Mr. Beauregard was very impressed with that tidbit of knowledge as well. Me. Sounds like you really did have some enchanted evening with the transient producer. I personally would rather him stay somewhere else if I had my druthers. Gavin, crestfallen. (sighs) That's all you have nowadays, isn't it? Me. What's that supposed to mean? Gavin. I'm trying to tell you about an incredible conversation I had about the ins and outs of Hollywood cinema with an actual producer who happens to be staying at our hotel. Can't you appreciate how fascinating this was for me? It could be the climax of our entire time in Loveless. I bite my nails. He dreamily floats through inebriation, unencumbered as always. Me. Climax? Our life isn't a film, Gavin. And if it were, this would certainly not be the climax for me. More like a montage of everything that went wrong. Gavin. Rolls his eyes and almost tips over. (sighs) Again with this. So, who scoffed at you today? Me. It's one thing for the citizens of Loveless to look at me like I should be shining their shoes, but for a guest in my own hotel? Gavin. May, we should be shining his shoes if he wants. We're providing him a luxury experience, remember? Me. Muttered. Oh, and you know all about that, don't you? Gavin. Grimaces and shrugs off my needling. Can you just let me finish here? I'm drunk enough where if I don't keep talking, I'm going to lose it, all right? Me. Your lunch? Gavin. Winks that signature Gavin Godfrey wink. My train of thought. 
As I was saying, Mr. Burgard was very impressed with me. So impressed that, well, he offered me an assistant director position on the motion picture he's working on. A new noir concept. Big names attached. Big budgets. Oscar buzz already. Cold Roses, it's called. Has a nice ring to it, eh? It starts filming exteriors in Sicily in a week's time. Gavin rubs his eyes. I look around the room, our beautifully organized home, the curated art pieces from around the globe, the library of books we trudged all the way from San Francisco. A full year of starting over. Me. Hard sigh, tongue pressed firmly against my teeth. <sighs> this is Napa all over again. Italy? Gavin, you're, you were a tenured professor at a reputable university. And now you want to be an assistant director? You're almost 50 years old. And what about the hotel? This is what you said you wanted to do. It's why you made us leave our jobs, our lives. Gavin, made you? I didn't make you do anything. Me, you can't be serious. Gavin, opportunities like this don't just literally walk in the door. We built this place, made it successful. Great, I'm not discounting that. But that was then. This is a real motion picture. And Mr. Beauregard says you are more than welcome to join us. See, you're reading him wrong. He has good intentions. Me, join you? Again, what about the hotel? How long is a production like this? Gavin, could be a month, maybe two or three, depending on how many locations, level of production. Me, two or three months? We can't. Gavin, yes, we can. We sell the hotel. Hell, we abandon it. It would still look better than when we found it, right? So what do you say? His face is flush. He looks hypnotized. He's not the man I was dancing with this morning. And that man wasn't the one I moved here with. I leap out of bed and trip over the sheets. I try to keep my voice lowered, but it comes through in a gurgled foam. Me. No! I say no! Are you insane? Have you lost your mind? We're having this conversation all over again. Again! You, you get bored and want to do something else. It's not so simple for me. Why can't you ever get that? We come here and now you want to take us away again? At the drop of a fucking alligator skin hat? No, Gavin. I say no. Because everything is always about you. Gavin. I'm doing this for you. You hate it here. Me. This is for me as much as the sun is for Oregon. I refuse. You're drunk. You're not thinking straight. So forgive my vehemence, but it's the only way to get this through your thick skull. We are staying right here. End flashback. Interior. Loveless Hotel. Early evening. The Vaseline vision of the scene between Reeves and Dwight percolates in my eyes. Director. Gut. Producer. Frantic and perturbed. Mr. Clay? Mr. Clay? The producer extends a hand gingerly toward me as abrupt, haunting clarity shocks my retinas. I jump at the feel of his fingertips. Me. Yes? Yes? What is it? What's wrong? The crewmen watch me. The director shakes his head. The actors sit still and bashful. The rain outside trickles to a stop. Producer. Frustrated. Scribbling. Uh, Mr. Clay, would you be able to stand further back? Maybe over there? Mr. Laramie says that you're distracting him. That you're staring. Again. Me. Looking at a shy Reeves, then back to the producer. St staring? Me? Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't even realize. Truly, I thought I'd stopped. Shouting to Reeves over the producer's shoulder. I really am sorry. Producer. Please, Mr. Clay, you don't need to talk to him. Just, could you? Interchangeable crewman. Off screen. Resetting. Director. Off screen. Exasperated. <sighs> Let's just do everything from the top. Producer. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people who haven't seen how the sausage is made get maybe a bit too enamored with the process. I understand if you want to stay because it's your hotel, but the director would prefer you to stand much, much further back. 
He sweeps his hands like he's wafting away smoke from a house fire. I back up as the actors resituate themselves at the bistro table. A crewman hands Dwight a fresh, half-smoked cigar. Another hands Reeves a new toothpick. A makeup woman powders his face. I suppose they did a nice job on the set dressing. I don't mind the dark red paint. It makes a nice backdrop in black and white film. I don't even mind their choice of the table, really. Perhaps in another life, it would have been something Gavin would have picked out while strolling through our old neighborhood. He would have said he adored it, and I would have said we already have a table, and you adored that one when we bought it. And he would have said that there was nothing wrong with a little redecorating, and then we would have had a new table in our living room. Me, stepping back into my shadowed corner under the chandelier. Is is this okay, back here? Producer, scribbling away in his notebook onto more important things. Yes, sure, fine, just don't move, or stare, or speak. Thank you. Me, lightly. I'll try not to breathe, either. The joke is lost on him. I'm not one for jokes, either. The rain outside begins again as the actors steady their poses. A marker snaps. Take three. Director. And... Action! Interior. Hotel and motion picture. Slightly later, early evening. Rain streaks the hotel window as detectives Laramie and Lewiston, I'm not sure what their names are in the movie, huddle over a small table. Lewiston smokes, his ashtray bracing under the stubbed weight of his previous stogie. Laramie chews a toothpick. Reeves. You want to let me in on the secret there, partner? Dwight. No secret here. Reeves. Sure about that? You're... Well, you've got that look in your eye. The one that says... You've got a hunch. Dwight. Takes a long drag before responding. Hunch ain't a secret, rookie. But it's best to keep both to yourself until you're certain. Reeves. Facing the rain-streaked window. I am certain of one thing. Something about this case just does not smell right. Dwight. They never do at first. But in time, you'll learn that it's just because your nose wants to smell something that isn't there. Your eyes are looking for ghosts in a forest. Reeves snaps his toothpick in his teeth and tosses the halves in the ashtray. He leans back in his chair and tosses his fedora on the table. Reeves, I'm not looking for a ghost. I'm looking for a person. Flesh and blood. A real, living, breathing person. At least at one point. And if we play our cards right, maybe. Just maybe. They still are. Reeves turns away from the window, away from Dwight, away from the scene, breaks the fourth wall. Our eyes lock. The lights and sound fall away as the chandelier shines a bright spotlight directly on me. I squint in the unexpected brightness. Reeves, what do you think? Me, checking through the illuminated haze and dust particles to see if he is in fact talking to me. I, um, I'm sorry? I beg your pardon? The director is frozen. So is Dwight, the producer and everybody else. The rain that had been streaking the window stops in its tracks. Reeves, of course you. You, Maynard Clay, what do you think? Me, I, what, I, well, I don't, in regards to what exactly? Reeves slowly stands, pushes in the chair, and saunters toward me. As he dips in and out of the shadows, he mutates and transmogrifies. One second he is Reeves Laramie, and the next he is Gavin Godfrey. I tense as he approaches. His facial features, his entire bone structure cleaves to the form of the two men. They both stare directly at me as the spotlight widens to join us. Gavin slash Reeves. If I'm alive or dead, silly. What do you think? Me. Beat. Everyone thinks you're dead. Gavin slash Reeves. Sure, but you never liked what the folks of this town had to say or think. So, what's your take? Me. Eyes glossy and translucent, whispering. I could never believe you were dead. Gavin slash Reeves and I embrace. 
He feels chimeric, smells a slightly different kind of the same. Me, continued, but I try to convince myself otherwise every day, because the alternative to me is much too hard to cope with. That you just went with that producer to Italy? It doesn't add up. We talked and argued and you eventually acquiesced, and in the morning you were just... Gavin slash Reeves. Gone. Yes, I know. Me. So was he. But you hadn't even packed. Your watch. You, you used to get up every morning, sit on the edge of the bed, stretch your arms wide, and then slide your watch onto your wrist. Every morning since the first time we woke up together. Gavin slash Reeves. Points at my wrist. That watch? Me. This one. Gavin slash Reeves. Never left without it. Me. And you would never leave without some of your favorite suits, your toothbrush, your razor, your collection of cufflinks. And Mr. Beauregard was gone too, without a trace. Wouldn't I have heard that beast of an automobile fire up in the morning? Nothing is calm as an ocean tide. And I've gone over it in my head a thousand times. Nothing. And you were... Gavin slash Reeves. Gone. Yes. Yes, you mentioned. Grins. Me. Indignant. How could you find this amusing? This, of all things, and the last thing we ever did was argue. Gavin slash Reeves. I suppose it just helps to have a sense of humor about it. Me. Your own death? Gavin slash Reeves. You said I wasn't dead. Me. How could I be sure? Gavin slash Reeves. I'm standing right here, aren't I? He is certainly annoying me like only Gavin could. I cross my arms and try to keep a straight face. Me. I would rather you were dead than believe you willingly chose to leave me in loveless Oregon, of all places. This wretched town. And look what's become of our beautiful home. It's in shambles. Nobody comes anymore. Everyone thinks I killed you. I am literally being compensated for its destruction. This crew came in here and immediately started ripping our life apart. Gavin slash Reeves. Looking through the darkness. Well, not much of a life, though. You said it yourself, May. Staying in this hotel, all alone. Keeping it exactly as it was. How I wanted it to be. Me. Combative. I had a say in it. I designed it to my liking. Gavin slash Reeves. You made the most of being here. Of what I wanted. You always did. Be honest. If I would have put up just an iota more of a fight, we would both be in Italy right now. Or at the bottom of that ocean, I suppose. Gavin Reeves walks back to the scene, past the frozen bodies and the camera equipment. Our spotlight splits in two so one can follow him and one can stay on me. He stops at the armoire and looks at it puzzlingly with his hands on his hips. He searches the space around the lobby and into the back supply closet until he locates what he's after. Gavin slash Reeves continued. Ah, I could have sworn the record player was over there. Me. Don't get me started. Gavin slash Reeves. Winks. It doesn't matter, May. He pages through the records, finds a suitable choice, and places it on the turntable. It's not even plugged in, yet the needle drops. The dramatic brass swell reverberates through the living room. A tear falls from my cheek to my lapel. The best years of our lives. Gavin slash Reeves continued. I thought you might remember this. As Gavin slash Reeves slowly walks back, our spotlights merge. He holds out his right hand and waits for my left. I look at it with a furrowed brow as he puts his left hand on my shoulder. Me. You always lead, Gavin slash Reeves, and you don't like change. Our hands meet, and we begin to dance. For the first time in years, I see things through my eyes instead of imagining what he would have. 
I lead him in time to the music along the perimeter of the room, past the cameras and equipment and frozen bodies, past the portraits we hung that used to hang in our apartment, past the red walls that used to be teal that used to be bare two-by-fours, along the wood floors that used to have irreplaceable antique carpet, where the front desk used to be, where the record player used to be, where we used to be. Why couldn't we have done this just one last time? I ask softly, shifting heel to toe, heel to toe, round and around. We are, he says, the light reflecting in his loving blue eyes. Our feet aren't touching the floor anymore. The music edges toward its crescendo. The walls around us move away in opposite directions as we float higher and higher. Across the road, the ocean is still. Some white-capped waves stuck in crests, others as just mere ripples. A breaching whale hovers in place above it all. I'm caught in the vast beauty of the landscape, and it takes me completely off guard until I see the vacant space our building once occupied. Wait! Gavin! The hotel! What about it? He isn't paying attention. He's watching the clouds as we drift past them. What if... what if I'm needed? I need to go back. I need to make sure it's okay. You don't need to worry about it. Now he's looking up, barely speaking, squinting at the sun. But this was our life! He ponders this for a moment as we ascend higher. Yes, and nothing will change that. I could feel his warm gaze as our feet obscure in cloud cover. Maynard, don't look down anymore. Maynard. Maynard. Maynard, I hear again. Maynard Clay. Mr. Clay, hello? The producer waves frantically in front of my face. Everyone stares at me. The director is pulling his hair out. God damn it, reset everyone, the director says. I'm sorry, says Reeves. Dwight shakes his head and rubs his eyes. No, no, not your fault, newbie. Mr. Clay, we're going to lose the shot if this keeps up. It's already getting late. Please, you're distracting Mr. Larrabee, the director, the crew. It's a problem. Could you, could you please leave us alone? The producer checks all his pockets feverishly. He tosses his prized notebook on the floor and retrieves a set of golden keys. He takes my hand and drops them into it. Here, my car is the white one out front. Just take it, go get yourself dinner, run an errand. I don't care. I clutch the keys. They're cold and heavy, full of purpose and potential. I look at the producer, calm and serene. Yes, I say, as much to him as to myself. Of course. I can do that. As I walk out the front door, I don't look back. I hear the producer call out a tight five, the director giving notes to Reeves and Dwight. The door seals it all in. I stop remembering what the building looked like and contrasting what it looks like now. I stop remembering what was and what could have been. A white Chevrolet Deluxe sits at the curb. I get in and fire up the engine. I almost think of something Gavin did or would have done or a memory of us together, but I stop myself. I put the car in gear and pull onto the road. The end of the row of loveless shops along 101 is shrouded in dark gray fog, but the stars twinkle in the fake rainwater residue left on the windshield. Climactic, bright spots in a dreary montage, leaving the best years of my life in search of something more. I keep driving. Thanks for listening to Loveless Oregon. If you want to learn more about the collection, go to elliotmatson.com slash loveless.